Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week we are joined by the United States editor of the Financial Times, Ed Luce, and professor of internal affairs and Middle East studies at Johns Hopkins Valley Nasser, two experts on Afghanistan. Remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and don't forget to tell us where you're from. And also, please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Blinkist, Raycon, and Chili Sleep in the show notes. We thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really makes this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, James, we discussed the Afghan tragedy last week, but there is so much there. There's so much that we might have done, should have done, could have done, didn't do. There's so much blame to go around. Some of the hypocrites, Republicans, the generals, uh, Donald Trump, uh, uh, just, you know, it's outrageous. But we have two people who really understand this as well as anyone uh, on the planet, I think. Valley Nasser uh, is a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of International Relations, the former dean, and he was Richard Holbrook's top aide in 2009 and 2010 on the Afghan-Pakistan task force. And Ed Luce is the chief Washington correspondent, commentator, and columnist for the Financial Times, and he was the South Asia bureau chief for the FT over there, so he really knows the region well. These are two of the smartest people I know, and they can teach us a lot about what's happened uh, in this momentous uh, event the last couple weeks. James, why don't you start and just take it over for a while? All right, so uh, I'll ask both of you the same question because you're both very involved. I'll just start with you, Ed. I don't know why. Maybe I think you're old in Valley, so I'll, I'll defer to you, but I could be wrong. When did you know this wall was lost? Yeah, I, I, I wish to take strong exception to me being older than Valley. Okay, maybe not. But I had to start with someone, so I just... I hope it comes before end. When did you know this war was fucking lost? Uh, pretty much from the beginning, if you define winning the war as building a nation... You know, building a nation is an unattainable objective. And, um, you know, particularly when Obama sort of midway through um, had the surge in 2009, more than 100,000 troops with a three-year deadline to achieve unattainable targets but before 2012, before his re-election. I mean, that was clear. Even he didn't have conviction in that. So I think it's been clear that by that measure, the, 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 the mission in Afghanistan has been lost you know, from from pretty much day one, but but by the measure of containing um, terrorism of, of the counterterrorism as opposed to the counterinsurgency one, then America was achieving its objectives pretty quickly. Um, so, I think the, the the goals from the outset were too extravagant. So, Barry, when did you notice there's a lost war? Because this is a defeat. There's no other way. You can't shine shit, as Lyndon Johnson said. All right, we lost. Just like we lost in when did you know this endeavor was hopeless? Well, I, when when President Obama came into the office, uh, Afghanistan was sort of sitting at a pivot point, and and at that point, the military really pushed hard for this idea of uh, of, of importing the model that had worked in Iraq, uh, the Petraeus surge to Afghanistan, what they called the fully resourced counterinsurgency. And a year or two after that, uh, it wasn't moving the needle at all. 
And then I think when when Trump came in uh, from day one, it was obvious that the Taliban were winning. Fewer Americans were dying because we were no longer putting soldiers on the front lines. They had moved to back office, but the Taliban was gaining territory. Violence, car bombs, etc., was on the rise. It was very clear that the, the Taliban were gradually beating us. I think everybody in the administration and the high levels understood that either you have to you know, put hundreds of thousands of troops on the ground, or uh, with, with the kind of commitment we had on the ground, the war was, was already lost. So this is basically, we've been on exit, accepting defeat, essentially, at least since the day that Trump went in. And, uh, and, and so uh, this is not a surprise. I, I, I think Trump pretty much ended the war. I mean, I, a lot of people are banging on uh, uh, President Biden for varieties of uh, correct or incorrect reasons. But the reality is that he um, that once he agreed to the Doha agreement, the way he negotiated Doha agreement, essentially he signed a, a surrender or exit in that agreement. So, so here we are, we've had Vietnam, which was a stone loss. Iraq, which was probably a 70% loss. Afghanistan was a stone loss. Does anybody at the Hopkins School or Sandhurst or West Point or Annapolis teach a course on how do you lose a war? I, you know, the, 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 there, are, there is in between a very good example to think about, and I think that's where Biden's thoughts were, which is the way George Bush Sr. dealt with Kuwait and Iraq. I mean, there was a clear mission, which is Saddam has to leave uh, uh, Iraq. And once he, sorry, leave Kuwait. When he pushed him out of Kuwait, he refused to be dragged into regime change and nation building in Baghdad. We downsized his military force, put containment in form of sanctions around him, and then left. And I think that's the way Biden looked at this. It just, it is right. It's how you define the war. Uh, uh, and and uh, and I think the military, the way they think about this is when you when you leave a place, you're most in danger of 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 of, a, of being really attacked. And so the United States put a lot of emphasis with the Taliban at, in Doha on getting safe passage out of Afghanistan. There are two things I think the Doha agreement was an agreement on. One was don't kill Americans, give us safe passage. And secondly, no more terrorism coming from Afghanistan. So in that sense, uh, you know, the, the U.S. basically signed the proper treaty. But, but the reality of it is, uh, I think it's the point that, that Ed raised. I mean, if you, if you make turning one of the most difficult, least developed countries in the world into a, uh, into a democracy, you're setting yourself up for, for failure from the, from the get-go. So, so, Ed, I want to go to you because I've read your, your, your column today. It, 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 you, you seem very uh, passionate about the exit was really bad. And I, I, I mean, I, I, I love you. You're our favorite guest. You're our first guest on this show. We love having you. I don't think the problem with this is the exit. I think it was the entrance and the entire 20-year failure of it. But tell our uh, listeners, uh, subscribers, what your what what your principal beef is with the way that we got out of there? 
Um, well, just to go back to, um, you know, how we got in. Uh, I mean, I was um, in New Delhi as the South Asia Bureau Chief for the Financial Times on 9-11. And on 9-12, I was on the plane to Islamabad. And later that afternoon, I went to see a guy called Hamid Gul, who was the former head of the ISI, Pakistan's intelligence agency, and known as the godfather of the Taliban. And he gave, he, for three hours in his home in Rawalpindi, told me and my colleague that uh, the attack on the Twin Towers was a Mossad plot. Every Jewish person working in the Twin Towers had failed to show up to work that day, and so on. So I got a pretty good tutorial in uh, the, the Pakistani stake in what happens in Afghanistan and in Sunni sort of extremism everywhere. And for none of those 20 years, I mean, Valley worked for Holbrook. You, know, you knew Holbrook. As a journalist, I dealt with him a lot. He was very popular with journalists, by the way. He'd respond to your texts. Um, in none of those 20 years was the United States able to really take on Pakistan's um, forked tongue, double dealing role in all of this. And if you try and fix Afghanistan without without getting tough with Pakistan, you're set up for failure. And um, I see no effort on the part of the Biden administration as it exits Af Afghanistan, a decision that I, is quite understandable. I don't fully agree with it, but it's quite understandable. I see no effort to really address the godfather of this situation, which is Pakistan. It's a very difficult, it's easy for me to recommend that, but there are going to be regional consequences to the Taliban takeover. This isn't the end of the American story in the region. There are going to be problems that arise from this that I think could be worse than keeping, say, 4,500 Americans in the country with six, 7,000 NATO troops. There are no, there are no good options. But I, I feel a little bit, I feel a little bit disconcerted by just how domestic and partisan and uh, and sort of ignoring of foreigners and of the region, the debate is back here um, about this withdrawal. So, so Val, I want to ask you, and I'll give Val a chance to talk. Sarah Chase, <clears throat> who I, I, I follow, I think she's a serious person, says that the Taliban were a creation of the Pakistani intelligence services. How, how, how much were, were the fingers of the Pakistanis, you know, there were a lot of fingers on this, how much were they involved in, and in, in, Ed, I'll, I'll give you a chance to respond to what Valley said. Well, uh, the Pakistanis were deeply involved, but, but uh, uh, sort of, they, they're not, they're, they're Afghans, and, and, they, and this to them is war of liberation against the U.S., and I think, you know, that's, that's, too, that's too easy an answer. That's as much as saying that the Viet Cong were the creation of the Chinese, so the Viet Cong or the North Koreans. Sure, they right. could not have survived without their, without their machinations, but, but if you deny the fact that there are facts on the ground that angered the Pashtuns, that allowed the, 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 the Taliban to, to gain traction, then, then you basically are somewhat deluding yourself. And, 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 uh, and, and, the, and also, I, I would say... I think Ed's point is very well taken. But look, the fact of the matter is that Pakistan will always care about Afghanistan more than we do. They're neighbors. The rest of, they, they're going to live next door to Afghanistan for the rest of their history. 40% uh, of Afghanistan is Pashtun. 20% of Pakistan 
is, uh, is Pashtun. But that, that 20% is much larger in terms of numbers. Uh, uh, the only country that's an existential threat to the territorial integrity of Pakistan is Afghanistan. Because if, if uh, Pakistanis lose control of Afghanistan, they, they actually face a dismemberment. The Pakistanis talk about the idea of a Pashtun Desh. You know, what happened with Bangladesh would happen over there. But I also thought that uh, Ed raised a number of very important issues, which is, which is very key. I mean, I would say, in, as, as people are criticizing Biden, it's important to note that, you know, the, the reason that uh, I don't think there's an option to keep any American soldiers in Afghanistan at all, because President Trump had already signed that deal with the, with the Taliban. It, the, the deal did not envision 2,500 American troops staying. And the Taliban had made it very clear that uh, they would not accept, just like they're not going to accept extension to evacuation, they were not going to accept American staying or keeping background. Many people in Washington or in Europe think that because the past uh, two, three years with 2,500 troops, no, nobody's got killed, that somehow uh, the 2,500 were doing something that 20,000 couldn't do in 2016. The reality is that once Doha agreement started, the Taliban accepted a ceasefire on killing and attacking Americans, which could, would, would be off the table if we pulled the JCPOA on the Doha agreement. In other words, a new president comes in, tries to renegotiate the deal or, or abrogates the deal that his predecessor done. So for Trump, for Biden, the real choice was, do we go back in in a big way or do basically uh, take the Doha agreement, which is Trump's agreement and the Republicans cannot object to it and, and get out? And on the, and on the uh, uh, important issues is, I would assume, and, and, and James, you know a lot better, that when the president says, OK, we're going to get out, the details of how you're going to get out is really not something that he's going to be micromanaging. It's up to the military. So the way the military pulled the plug on the Afghan army, taking away their air support, taking away even software was taken away from them being able to communicate with their with their uh, with their uh, uh, co uh, convoys. You know, those are decisions that also uh, uh, was at the implementation phase, and they go to the. Uh, in other words, we help destruct the. Afghan military. It wasn't just that they didn't have a will to fight. And, and, but I think one of the most important issues that Ed raised, and I do think it's a criticism of this administration, is that they came into the office with the idea that the Middle East and, and, and South Asia should be forgotten. It's all about China. And we're leaving this region. And, and uh, you know, we don't need to talk to anybody about it. We don't need to talk to the Europeans. We don't need to talk to Pakistanis. We don't need to talk to the Arabs. In fact, we don't think the region matters at all. So uh, what, what Ed is saying is being absent in the thinking of this administration. I don't think they had a post-August 31st view of the region. They were, okay, ha uh, what happens to that region? So, so Ed, I want to go because we're, we're not cable TV, so we can all disagree and, and, and love each other. It, it seems to me, just listening to the conversation, that Valley has a, a is less critical of what Biden did than you are. I, is that a fair assessment as to what I'm listening to in your opinion? Yes, I think that I think that's a fair assessment and Valley makes some 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 great points. Right. I mean, clearly, you know, the Taliban is not a pure de novo creation of Pakistan. There is demand in there 
amongst Pashtuns in Afghanistan for that kind of politics, uh, Islamist politics. Um, uh, but it is worth mentioning that, you know, um, the de facto right now Taliban leader, the one who Bill Burns met in Kabul earlier this week, um, uh, Mullah Baradur, Abdul Ghani Baradur, um, uh, was um, uh, several years ago um, uh, attempting to reach out to Karzai, well, or responding to Karzai, then president of Afghanistan, reaching out to him to broker a peace deal between the Taliban and the Karzai government. The Pakistanis arrested Mullah Baradur and imprisoned him. They did not want a peace deal. That was a key, I mean, potentially pivotal moment in the possibility for an Afghan political settlement. Pakistan scuttled it. And I think that's that's really worth emphasizing. The, I mean, the only other thing I would say to Vali's very valid points um, is that if you look at the American death toll, in 2016, 2017, 2018, before the Doha talks began, when America had a lot more soldiers on the ground and they were fighting the Taliban. America had, I think, 12, 13,000 troops. The death toll was about 20 or 30 a year. Now, 20 or 30 a year is, you know, it's, it's too much for their families, but we're not talking uh, about uh, the ma- massive casualties here. Um, uh, but, and, and it was effective, that presence at keeping the Taliban at bay. So, you know, I think that it's just been a very binary debate here. You know, either you build a nation or you get out and leave it to the Islamists. There are other options. And, and I think that I think that Biden will come to regret pulling out as he regretted pulling out fully of Iraq in 2011 with the, um, the, the vacuum that left. Hey, turn your goals into reality this summer and take action to start learning what you need to to get to the next level by joining us and using Blinkist. Blinkist takes top nonfiction books and gives you the key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks that you can learn from in just 15 minutes. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, an affliction some of us have, get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or dive into history with titles like A Short History of Brexit and What Happened. They blinked thousands of titles in 27 categories. And if you like podcasts, which I assume you all do, they blinked those too with Shortcast. And it's all in one app and right in your pocket so you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. James, you love Blinkist. I, I love Blinkist. And just so you know, I have been officially medically diagnosed would have an attention deficit syndrome, all right? And for all of the people like me, or maybe not as serious cases I have, this thing is a godsend because I'm a very curious guy, but I'm very fidgety, and I like to move from topic to topic. And I wish somebody would have designed this in 1964 when I was 20 years old. But I'll take it now because this is a, this is a godsend to a guy like me who is curious and fidgety. It's a terrific product. I, I, I cannot recommend it enough. James had, had Blinkist in 1992. Just imagine how much Clinton would have won by. I'm uh, telling it, you. It, it is, <laughs> no, it, I would have been distracted because I'd have been reading about, you know, the ancient Greeks and I'd have moved on to something else and I wouldn't have been focused because it's too, it too attractive. So it was probably a godsend to me that I didn't have. <laughs> you would have ignored Ohio. Yeah. That is a godsend. Yeah. 
Anyway, you used Blinkist and Summer Reading List from Blinkist, The Future of Capitalism by Paul Collieri and A Promised Land by Barack Obama, among others. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash warroom to start your free day seven trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash warroom. You get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash warroom, or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, Ed, let me ask you a question. You were the Southeast uh, uh, Asia Bureau Chief. You spent a lot of time there. You know the region. Right now, put yourself in the shoes of the leaders in Beijing, Islamabad, New Delhi. What are you thinking right now? Well, New Delhi, I'm going to be pretty pissed off um, because this is a big sort of strategic gain for Pakistan. And Pakistan, you know, is the eternal rival um, to India. Um, I'm also going to be looking um, at what the Chinese moves might be here. And I think one that we were discussing before the show, in fact, um, is that in exchange for keeping the um, uh, Xinjiang, the Uyghur, Turkmenistan groups out of Afghanistan, um, you know, the the Chinese will invest um, in in, in a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Now, whether that's actually possible, given the instability, is another question. But that would be a gain for China uh, in terms of extending the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, India is part of maybe the most important part of the Quad, um, you know, which is the counterbalance to China in the region, which we have renamed the Indo-Pacific because of India's importance. So, you know, the Biden administration's uh, rationale for saying we're pulling out of a forever war in order to focus on the Indo-Pacific is right there under question, because this is, this is a, a gain for China and a blow to India, our sort of key counterbalance to China. So I, I'm worried if I'm Indian about the Biden administration's strategic grasp of this situation. And I sense opportunity if I'm Chinese. Valley, do you agree? No, I, I, I agree. I, I, think, I think the uh, uh, Iranians, Russians, Chinese, Uzbeks, they all concluded the Taliban were winning the minute the Doha agreement started because of the way that that agreement was, was, was structured. They didn't anticipate the collapse quite the same way. But they were, and that's why they already started their their uh, uh, diplomacy with the Taliban before the collapse happened. Mullah Baradar was invited to to Beijing, met with the Chinese foreign minister, which is a, quite a big deal to invite a you know a, a non governmental head of an Islamic organization to meet with the foreign minister. Delegations went to Iran, went to Russia, and I think all of them. The message to the Taliban was basically that, that these countries want the Taliban to behave like a government. They don't care about human rights. I mean, the Chinese, we don't know they don't. The Iranians don't. You, what you do with your own population is nobody's business. But uh, no terrorism, no drugs, uh, no uh, you know, uh, adventurism outside. And, and, I, and I think, uh, so that was the initial message. Now I think all of them are worried about, are not worried about a Taliban government only. They're worried about no government. I mean, the Afghan economy is in a free fall. 
75% of Afghan budget was money from the outside. The war economy that the United States and others put money into Afghanistan is gone. Already we're seeing food and cash shortages in, in Kabul. And what the Taliban earned in drug money does not support um, paying salaries and running a country of 34 million people. So it is quite likely uh, that the Taliban will itself fracture between long generations, among regions. Already there are disagreements within the Taliban about how to handle government, how to handle uh, you know, uh, uh, negotiations with Karzai. And then if you have a free-for-all, then I think the Iranians, uh, uh, Uzbeks are worried about refugees. They're worried about mayhem. And, and terrorism is most likely to be a greater danger if, if Afghanistan is a no-man's land. So I think it's possible, aside from a Belt and Road uh, initiative, that once we're gone, the Chinese may find a way to provide you know, functioning money to keep the Afghan economy going in exchange. And I think the Chinese sort of short-run demands are fairly simple. No terrorism, as Ed said. Stability and, uh, and that these guys basically don't begin to become evangelists for Islamic activism ac across the region. So we'll see if they can handle it, if they can manage it. Let me ask you both to pick up on a final question. I'm old enough to have been around in 1975 uh, when we had uh, the, uh, the uh, evacuation uh, of Vietnam. And all the doomsayers from Kissinger on down said, this is going to change America's standing in the world. There's going to be a domino theory. The Soviet Union uh, is going to be emboldened. It didn't end up that badly. It really didn't. As a matter of fact, uh, it almost cut the other way. Is there any chance that as bad as this looks now, that maybe in five or 10 years, it will look differently and that we will have gotten out of a quagmire and maybe be able to focus on other issues better? Ed? Oh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of chance. Um, uh, I mean, it's, it's very hard to predict the future. So uh, yeah. you know, what we're discussing is potentially very foreseeable things, but that's just in the short term. What it looks like five, 10 years from now, so much depends you know, on whether Islamism is a spent force and whether this is just a sort of minor false dawn for Al-Qaeda and others. Um, and also on the course of China. You know, China's got the most brittle um, autocratic leader it's had for a very long time, arguably since Mao. And you know, the, uh, my favorite thing about Xi Jinping is, um, you know, he's got every single title and medal and, uh, you know, um, uh, station, senior position available. Um, Deng Xiaoping, uh, in his last few years, when he was fully in control, his only position was vice chairman of the Chinese Bridge Playing Association. When you, when you take every position going, that means you're insecure. So we've got an insecure autocratic Chinese leader, and it's very hard to predict where that will go. But the short term, I, I don't think I don't think this is good, and I think it's a very different situation to to, to Vietnam in 1975. Valley, I can't help but asking you about your old colleague uh, and your boss, Richard Holbrook, who uh, uh, you and I emailed, and I said, I'm sure he, if he's up in heaven, he would have negotiated his way in. But he's looking down and saying, almost, I told you, bastards, this would happen. Uh, uh, is there any uh, sense that if they had listened in those two years more to Holbrook, it, we might have gotten out in a better way? Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, 
I think so. I mean, it, it, your, your negotiating position where you have 100,000 100, troops on the ground, and if, uh, as Ed was saying, if the United States was in a position to put a lot more pressure on, 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 on Pakistan at that point, would have been very different when you're trying to negotiate with 20,000 troops and then you're know, trying to negotiate with 2,500 troops because you, know, you have a very different uh, position. I, I remember uh, I was taking a walk with Holbrook in Paris uh, and, and he pointed to uh, uh, Hotel uh, de Crillon in, in, the, in, in the Place de la Concorde and he said, I spent the best six months of my life in that hotel negotiating uh, an exit from Vietnam. After six months, the, 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 the talks failed. We spent several more, more years, several more lives uh, in Vietnam only to negotiate a worse deal to get out. It's much better to do it at, at, at this point in time. And, I, and, and he constantly tried to tell President Obama at Vietnam, but that time they thought he's a dinosaur and what has Vietnam got to do with that? I, I really find it extremely ironic that the example of Saigon is now all over the place. And, and I, and I want to say, look, America is such a great economy and power that, of course, it always survives things. And then we can look back and say those things didn't matter. But, but you know, whether it was Vietnam or Afghanistan, there are small things that happens now and then that do matter. Like what other country didn't we help, which would have been more important at that point in time because of what happened in Vietnam? Right. Or, or what did we do and not do? And, and so uh, uh, th there is no question that right now everybody's very upset, not just because about that we've lost the war, but also because we've shown lack of competence in, in, in executing this. Uh, uh, and, and secondly, also because this administration, and I do think they are open to criticism here, has talked with nobody about this, consulted nobody. Uh, uh, as, as one uh, British MP put it, the U.S. wants to lead in and lead out and expects when he says jump, the Europeans jump. It doesn't, it doesn't want their advice. It doesn't want their counsel. It's just going to inform them uh, of, of what, it, what, what they need to do. Countries around the world may not have an option, but, but in reality, um, they're not happy with it. And, and whether that will matter in the margins... Uh, I don't know, but but it's not it's not the it's not a shining moment for American leadership, and I think a lot of people are also worried about what will it do to 2022 and 2024. James, you have a final question. Well, losing a war is bad, and we've become very accustomed to it. We've lost a goddamn war. So to add, uh, this is great having y'all. So Barry, I know exactly the status of Richard Holbrook. So. He is in purgatory, and he's negotiating his way into heaven right now. And he's going to get there, goddammit. Okay? <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm not a theologian. I'm not the Archbishop of Canterbury. I'm not the Pope. I'm not the chief rabbi. I'm not the, the, the head of the head mullah. But I know what the fuck is going on with Holbrook. I can tell you guys. Uh, James, James, God is going to find that it's easier to say yes to Holbrook. I, I to just hope right. I'm just saying, Richard, get, just get my ass in there, okay? <laughs> hey, you guys have been terrific. Uh, thank you. You were two of the great experts on this. Uh, uh, Ed Lewis and uh, Valley Nasser, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for thank Just remember, we lost a war. We lost a war. Never forget yeah. that. Never forget that. It was a okay. humiliating defeat. Okay, thank you, guys.
hey, no matter how you're feeling about getting back out there, there's no denying it's a challenge. So when the world gets too loud, something that you love to do is create your own soundtrack by popping in Raycon wireless earbuds. Let me tell you right now, Raycons are the best way to listen. They come with a bunch of gel tips for your comfort, and unlike some other brands, they don't stick out of your ears. Raycons have a 32-hour battery life, so you can listen to what you want, when you want, for a really long time. Hey, you know, James, sometimes you need some upbeat music to pump you up before you see people or to stay calm with some guided meditation. I, th- I got to be honest, I have not. And I- I'll tell you why. They-, they sent me these things, and my daughter, who's a 23-year-old graduate student at Interior Design, says, Dad, these things are great. I'm taking them. And, of course, I've, I've, I've not told my daughter no for 23 years, and I'm not going to start. So i got to get <laughs> another pair. But she says, I mean, her and all of her friends, I mean, they think this is the catch-me-out product. Yeah, the young people love this product, man. When you get your favorite songs, when you listen how good it sounds on Raycon earbuds. Now, this is you, they start at half the price of other premium audio brands, and they sound just as good. Raycons come with a 45-day happiness guarantee. 45-day happiness guarantee. So you really can't lose. Give them a try, and you'll see what I mean. Create your own soundtrack with Raycon right now. Politics War Room listeners can get 15% off the Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash warroom. That's buyraycon.com slash warroom to save 15% on Raycons. Raycon.com slash warroom, or look for the link in our show notes. A look for my daughter who has them. <laughs> Possibly mine, too. <laughs> right. Hey, James, we've got, again, um, a round of really, really good listener questions. Ken, in Vancouver Island, Canada, playing off of that wonderful show we had l- last week with Greg Simons on the, uh, on the Pacific War, says, I cannot help but think that some of the more impetuous Soviet generals tempered their zeal in the early years of the Cold War because of Harry Truman's clear demonstration of them that the U.S. policy was ultimately to take whatever measures they saw as necessary and effective, even nuclear weapons, regardless of any humanitarian concerns. Your thoughts, and do you think this was a conscious effort on the part of Truman? Uh, You know, it's a very good question, and... Maybe so. I, I I wouldn't discount it. I, I mean, I'd like to talk to Craig and some other yeah. historians. And, and, you know, at, at Potsdam, and, you know, the Russians knew that we had the bomb. I mean, Truman told Stalin, and he already knew. And, of course, they got one shortly thereafter. But, but there was a lot of Soviet adventurism in that critical time from, say, May 1945, you know, and they obviously took over a lot of Eastern Europe, but they had some designs. And one of the stupidest things is is Patton wanted to go keep on marching to Moscow. The the Soviet army in 1945 would have beat our ass, okay? They just would have. I mean, that sounds an unpatriotic thing to say, but we could not have marched to Moscow in 1945, I, I mean, the, the Soviet army was was a juggernaut, and we were, I don't know what, 3,500 miles away, 
So I, I, I think it's a, it's an intelligent question. I don't know the answer to it, but I suspect there's validity to well, it. Well, apart from what would have happened if we'd marched to Moscow, uh, I think the one thing that it, that it generated, Soviets, as you say, got their nuclear weapons soon, there was a doctrine, mutual assured destruction. People made a lot of fun of it, but you know what? It worked. Uh, there was a sense that uh, after watching Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that no one wanted to do this again. I'm not sure Truman thought uh, a lot about the post-war ramifications. He wanted to end the war uh, in Japan. Uh, and uh, I think uh, in the end, it probably spared a lot of lives. James? Yeah, there was a period but there was a period where we had it and they didn't. Of course, MacArthur wanted Truman to use it on China and he wouldn't do it. He didn't want to drop a third bomb on Japan. But the, 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 the listener's question, I think, is extremely valid is. And, and penetrating. I don't know the answer, but it, it very likely is right. This is a tough one. This is from David in Jackson, New Jersey. He said, I agree with your assessment that not getting vaccinated is wrong. He says, I am vaccinated. But James, he wants to know about your thinking that it is immoral and a sin, but not speaking out about killing babies in the womb. That seems to be a disconnect. And David says, as a Christian, I see them both as wrong, although to a different degree. Give me your thinking on that, he asks. Well, I, 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 look, there are a lot of people in my family that think exactly the same way that you do. And I, but it's a complicated subject, but I, I would just say two wrongs don't make a right. All right? I, I, at the end of the day, I, I would describe myself as pro-choice, but I, I understand what you're saying. But I, I don't I, I don't think the line runs straight. And the the other thing is when you're not vaccinated, you you just don't put yourself at risk. You put everybody around you at risk and you furthermore put somebody at risk who, you know, may have another medical condition that you can't get attention to. So I I, I understand it. I I I don't agree with your position, but but I respect it. I I not only I don't even respect the I respect the position of pro life people. I don't have a modicum of respect for the anti vaccine people. None. Huge difference. There is a uh, I, I, I happen to be uncomfortably pro-choice, uh, uncomfortable because I think it should be avoided at all costs if possible. But you're right. There is a case, a very compelling case on both sides. Uh, with, right. with, there is no case, no case whatsoever for the anti-vaccine side. As and we're learning in Florida, it's not, you're right. Texas and Missouri and other places. Um, I don't think it's permissible, just permissible for, for people of faith to be a permissible or encourage people of faith to have the vaccine. My position is, I think you're putting your soul in, in, in jeopardy by refusing a vaccine, and I believe that. I agree. James, we have a bunch of political questions here. Uh, the first one comes from Christine in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. I grew up right near Lansdale. And she asked, she said, could you please uh, vet next year's Pennsylvania Senate race? Christine, that's a really good question. That is a key race to watch. It's a retiring Republican. The Democrats have a real shot they are, frankly, worried that the front runner right now, because of name recognition, is the lieutenant governor. He is a Bernie Sanders Democrat, a genuine populist, uh, and they're, they're, they're worried about whether he could win a general election. There are two other potentially strong general candidates in it, Connor Lamb, a congressman from 
uh, the Pittsburgh area, uh, and a woman, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, named Val Ashkush, who's a Montgomery County uh, chairwoman. You know something? Those Philadelphia suburbs, those four suburbs will produce more votes in the Democratic primary than Philadelphia. Uh, that's been the great growth in Democratic strength. So if, if she's a good candidate, she will be formidable. They should be able to beat any Republicans. The, the, the Republicans are so crazy, James, that they, the Republican legislature is now launching an Arizona-style audit of the elections. Biden won by 80,000 votes. It is a total farce, and they've gone all in for Trump. All right, I want to make a prediction right now, and I'll get to, to this question. I think we'll win at least one of Ohio and Florida. I, I think the Republicans facing a daunting situation in Ohio. They're going completely nuts. All right, to Pennsylvania. So let, let me be clear up front. I, I generally don't get involved in primaries. Very rarely, I make an exception, I'm going to help Connor raise money. All right. However, and there's also Malcolm Kenyatta, who is a black guy from Philadelphia, who's a kind of compelling, interesting figure that's running also. Uh, you know, it's going gonna, it, it, gonna to be, I have no idea who's going to win this because the, you're right, Fetterman, and he's very skilled. He's a Bernie bro, and he's yeah. got a lot of things, but he, 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 he's a guy who's skilled. Uh, the Montgomery County, is she's a very serious very accomplished uh, person, and you're right. She comes from vote-rich Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, and the one woman, and seat. the one woman in the race, and the one woman in the race. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, um, and I, I would, I, I, of course, if Fetterman were a nominee, I'd be for him 100. percent Or well, I would be for Malcolm if he were a nominee. But it, it's a, it's a. They have a tough time in Ohio navigating their primary. We're going to have a tough time in Pennsylvania navigating our primary. Yeah. Right? But it's a, it's a good question, and it's very relevant it, and very to the it, point. It's a very good question, and don't forget the Republicans will have a hard time navigating their primary in the Keystone State, too. Very hard. So we'll see how, very, how it all comes we, out. Uh, Democrats in the press always obsess on Democratic difficulties and pitfalls. Yeah. They're not without pitfalls here. That's for sure. James, we have that, enough to keep you up. two more political questions to you. I'm going to combine them. One is Tyson in Reno, Nevada. Uh, he's recently started working for a Mandela Barnes campaign for the Senate in Wisconsin. Uh, his question is, what's your advice to people who are new and working with campaigns, especially young people? Any thoughts on Wisconsin? I'll combine that with Murphy in Knoxville, who said he's thinking about uh, pursuing a career and wants to get involved in politics in deep red East Tennessee. What advice do you give a young person there? So it's a twofer <laughs> for you, James. Well, let me let me take the the the, the East Tennessee question because I, I I I really admire you and you know East Tennessee is an interesting part of the country. It was very pro union during the Civil War, and and it's it's become uh, uh, I think it's really gone really hard right. Uh, but I I I encourage you to stay involved. I I love Tennessee. I've spent a lot of time there. But but be prepared to have some disappointments, at least in the short or the immediate term. Uh, in terms of Wisconsin, you know that that's one of these races that I think we should win. But Ron Johnson is is in a sea of of really bad people. He he seems to stand out uh, for some reason or other in these 
you know, owned everything that you can imagine. Uh, that primary is, is going to be very, 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 very tough. No one is backing down. I hope we can get through it and get out of this as a unified party. But I, I, I can't imagine that anybody that's running in Wisconsin that I would not be enthusiastic about against Ron, Ron Johnson. My, my only advice to you is learn what a Democratic primary looks like in Wisconsin and have a plan for how you're going to win it because it's going to be very heavily influenced by what happens in, in uh, was it Dane County, Madison, very heavily influenced by what happens in much more in Milwaukee in the general election. Hey, James, Chris in Brooklyn, New York, as we see and hear the GOP talking about the word communist, like a child who hears a swear word for the first time with no idea what it means other than it's naughty. Could we please pressure the press to confront children like Marjorie Taylor Greene with a very simple ask to define communism? You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Chris, is not even doesn't even have a child's intellect, I think, when it comes to this. That's a pointless exercise. They also use the word socialism more often. They have no idea what socialism is. Uh, and to the extent that we have any socialism, it's Social Security, it's Medicare. And, of course, they you know support that. So, yes, you're right. They demagogue those issues. But you ain't going to teach them anything. Yeah, I, you know, it, it, it's not that hard. All right? Socialism is an economic system. All right, they have a somewhat hybrid form of it. They have it, you know, famously in Scandinavia. Uh, it, it, communism is also, in addition to being a, a very extreme version of socialism, is also a, a political system that excludes certain people. You know, it's the dictatorship of the proletariat, whatever, whoever gets in the fucking proletariat, I have no idea. And the truth of the matter is, it's never succeeded anywhere. And... and the idea that that the, the Scandinavians are communists is ludicrous. They're, they're some of the most aggressive capitalists in the world. But, you know, it's, it's hard to stop and explain that shit to people. Fortunately, we have a podcast where our audience understands the difference. So I'm, I'm not going to belabor this, this idiot. But I would just say this, that don't we know that Jewish laser beams cause forest fires? And it's not global warming. It's the Jews in outer space. <laughs> one final one, James, uh, and this is from Jason in Des Moines. It's a bit tough one for you, James, but he asked, when the history of COVID-19 is written, will Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis be to COVID what George Wallace was to civil rights? Wallace stood in the front of the University of Alabama to prevent kids from getting an education with a bullshit rant about tyranny. Is this what we're going to, 20 years from now, say about Abbott and DeSantis? You know, I look at those guys and I say, you know, they they got to be people. I mean, they have to have a conscience, all right? I, I don't know that they do. I'm, I'm beginning to doubt that. And, like, you're sitting there and you lay your head on your pillow and you're watching what's going on more as of this moment, but it always changes to Santa's. And the number of people that you at the cardboard that you were willing to stack up, the lives you were willing to ruin, just blatantly for a political ploy that in the end I don't think is going to work. I, I don't understand. I, I, I would love for someone to tell me how these two people live with themselves. 
I, I mean, I'll give Asa Hutchinson credit. You know, I said, look, well, I just made a mistake. He's just more right wing than is, is, is the next guy. I just don't. Did, did these people even have a conscience? I mean, can they like talk to the people that are hit, you know, trying and, and not just the people that have COVID, but the people that have heart attacks, people in auto accidents, people that have, you know, kidney stones, human suffering. How can they be so oblivious to this? And and then stand up there like there's some kind of fucking arrogant know-it-all. It, it it's 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 unbelievable. It, it's just stunning to me. James, it, let me give you one. But you're right. You're absolutely right. One difference, I suspect. George Wallace later repented. He felt he knew what he had done was outrageous. He felt guilty. He tried to make amends. It didn't wipe out what he had done. That's for sure. I would guess, I would confidently predict that DeSantis and Abbott will never repent for all of the harm and deaths they have caused. Yeah, I, you know, Wallace, he, of course, he started out as a kind of racial moderate, and when he lost, he said, I'll never get out sagged. So he went yeah. two turns. But, but a lot of people, and I'm not defending segregation at all. I'm not defending anything. I, 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 I take my life. I grew up in the Deep South during that time. A lot of people just thought that was the natural order of the world, right? It was completely wrong, totally wrong. But but this is like in, insanity. It's just insane that you're just jeopardizing people's lives for what you believe is, is the advancement of your political future. And, and if you believe Poland, I don't know everybody's skeptical about Polandism, but it's pretty overwhelming that people in Florida, this is not even a smart political move in addition to being a, a utterly immoral, disastrous humanitarian move. I, I, I just don't understand it, man. I really yeah. don't. I agree. Hey, James, if you look at the science, the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering core body temperatures. You'd be amazed. Temperature-controlled sleep restores testosterone levels, repairs muscle after a hard day's work, and improves cognitive function so you can always start your day feeling sharp and alert. But sleeping cool is good for everyone. Right, James? It, it, it's unbelievable. And, and the thing that I like about it is I, I can barely screw in a light bulb. And, and this, this product works and I, I keep coming back. I grew up in, you know, hot, humid South Louisiana prior to air conditioning. I always was looking for a cool sheet to sleep on. And this this almost makes me infantile. It's so damn comfortable. And i tell you what it's really good for. It's really good for spooning. So if you like to sleep and you like to spoon, I highly recommend this. But I like both of them. And I'm telling you, this thing works. And... It, it doesn't take any it doesn't take any getting used to. The the first time, the first five minutes on it, you understand that you're having an entirely different experience. It's a terrific product. Well, Chili Sleep makes customized climate control sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well-being. Chili Sleep makes the Uller and Cube sleep systems, hydropower, temperature, controlled mattress toppers that fit over your existing mattresses to provide for ideal sleep temperature, and as James says, spooning. But these luxury mattresses pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, whether you sleep hot or cold. 
These sleep systems are designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through the day. Imagine waking up and not feeling tired. Chili Sleep can help make that happen. Then, for an extra layer of comfort, they also make the Chili Blanket. The only weighted blanket, they will also be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat-free sleep. Head over to chilisleep.com slash warroom to learn more and check out a special offer available exclusively for Politics War Room listeners and only for a limited time. That's chili, C-H-I-L-I, sleep.com slash war room to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day or look for the link in our show notes. Okay, guys, let's let's move to the outrage of the week. James, I suspect you have an outrage. Yeah, yeah I do. And I'm just going to be try to be candid with our, our listeners. I was born in 1944. I was born in South Yeah, I'm white. I, I don't have white guilt. I, I don't worry around worrying about, you know, I know there's such a thing as white privilege. I don't know it's so stupid as to deny that. But I always kind of wondered, you know, if I would have been born black, I just wouldn't have had the same life I had. And and I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm not walling guilt. I'm just making a fact. And so, the, the, you know, of course, when the financial crisis hit and we had leverage rates of 35 to 1, they all blame black people. What the fuck are you talking about? So Dan Patrick, the, the lieutenant governor of Texas, who actually looks like a human being, all right, if you look at him, he looks, he looks like a, a, a human being. He doesn't have horns coming out of his... And said that the reason that Texas is having this is because of black people. Well, I can't, I'm not going to go through the factcheck.org. If you just Google it, there's 10 pages on Wikipedia that stunningly refute this. But what is it about, and I go back to say, what is it about a human being, a normal-looking human being, who I didn't look him up, but I'm sure he's got a college degree, who, who lives and breathes and, and walks among us that would be that despicable, that false, that willing to be that, and I'm sorry, you know, you said, we can't call somebody a racist. Man, I, I, I don't know what's in your heart, Dan Patrick, but whatever comes out of your fucking mouth is really, really racist. And I, I would say that to anybody. I'm not going to, Freaking apology! I, I I I I don't know I I I don't know what makes a human being that callous. I have no earthly idea. James must be something in the water down there. You have the lieutenant governor, you have the governor, you have the attorney general, and you have uh, oh wow, Ted no, Cruz. he didn't do anything wrong. So, uh, he just so I don't I, I don't know what uh, what's in the water, but uh, something something ain't serving the Lone Star State very well. Wow. You know, I don't I don't know if I have an outrage. Uh, I want to praise once again a new Nancy Pelosi. Oh. She is the best speaker in the House at least since Sam Rayburn, and maybe you know much longer. Uh, she. Forged together, she has the three-vote margin, and she managed to put together a package this week. Critics say, "Well, she just kicked things down the road." Yeah, she did. Yeah, it won't satisfy everyone. No, it won't. But she put it together as no one else could have. They kept alive both the infrastructure bill and the much larger social spending bill. Whether they'll succeed in the fall or not, I don't know. But let me tell you something: 
Joe Biden ought to get down on his hands and knees every night and thank God for Nancy Pelosi. Just imagine if she weren't the Speaker of the House of Representatives. So uh, it's not an outrage. It's an outrage uh, only to her critics. So you, you think that, that Seth Moten was right pushing Marsha Fudge? <laughs> I, I think I think Seth, Seth Moulton, who I once wrote a column, had a fantastic future in American politics, uh, hasn't done anything to help himself, starting with the idiotic notion that Marsha Fudge should replace Nancy Pelosi. Well, you know what? I believe in redemption. Come on, Seth. <laughs> Yeah, but then he ended up going. Then he ended up going to right, Afghanistan. Uh, and he ran ago, for, yeah, ran which, for, I mean, he's had a he, which hadn't helped he, him a lot. <laughs> uh, he hadn't had a good recent history, but he can come back. He's young. I yeah. hope he does. Right. You're doing yeah, very do. well right now, dude. He, he's got a lot of potential. Yeah. Okay, terrific. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist, Raycon, and Chili Sleep. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our war room planning.